0: Well, good morning. Can't wait to share with you from John chapter 5. You may have noticed that your pastors get pretty excited up here each and every Sunday morning as we preach from the pages of the Gospel of John. Uh, When you read through any portion of this book, this Gospel, you find Christ at its center. And if you're looking to begin a a daily reading of God's Word, or perhaps uh, you need to re-engage with God's word. Let me suggest you start here in John. You know, whenever a, a person is uh, saved and asks where to begin, or they are considering gospel truths and becoming a Christian, I point them to this book. I always say the gospel of John. In fact, it's where I started my journey at age 24, considering the record of Jesus's life, his, his words and deeds. They're not mere facts, mind you. Uh, It's where I fell in love with the one who loved me first. He loved us first. Amen? Amen. In one sense, this gospel is extremely evangelistic. But in another, it is highly theological. There's an old saying, it's shallow enough for a little child to wade in it and deep enough for an elephant to drown in it. So how do you get started? Well, first, let me just recommend... Purchase a good study Bible, hit our bookstore and they'll, they'll point you in the right direction and then resolve to read his word daily and start in the Gospel of John. It's a good place to start. Maybe uh, set aside a spot in the house, uh, get the coffee all set the night before and uh, get excited to uh, tackle that. John is a, a great place to start. Already we've uh, read of Jesus's earthly encounters with John the Baptist, uh, Nicodemus, The Samaritan woman, the royal who's a royal official whose son was, excuse me, whose son was ill, he also uh, was at a wedding and he cleanses the temple. And in these accounts, we find that the Lord is bold and he has authority as well as in a number of those instances, we see his uh, compassion and his grace. And so as we turn our attention to John chapter five this morning, you want to make your way there, John chapter five you and I will see once again Christ at the center of the text, Christ at its center. John chapter 5 begins with a, a memorable healing of a man who has been sitting 38 years, 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. He can't walk and our Lord turns his attention to him. And as we read and as we examine this text this morning, I want to say don't miss it. Don't miss it. This is not really about the paralytic man. John's focus in his gospel account is not on the healing itself. I mean, as much of a, a miracle as it is, and we'll get to that, it is instead an introduction to the winds of hostility, the winds of hostility that are about to blow against Christ. When you examine the, the anger the Jewish leaders had towards our Lord, the outright rejection of the Messiah, the Messiah, you're led to passages like this one first. This is where we begin to see a shift in the attitude that the religious leaders display towards Christ from one of curiosity to to some concern to now pure venom. And chapters 5 and 7 describe much of the opposition he faced in Judea with chapter 6 detailing his his, uh, opposition in Galilee. And again, all of this is triggered by this event here. This event here in the first 18 verses of chapter 5. By an incident at a pool in Jerusalem known as Bethesda. We hear Bethesda, we think Maryland. No, Bethesda, Jerusalem. Look at this with me. Uh, John chapter 5, I'll read the first 18 verses. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who asked, who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Verse 15 here. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were... Persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Equal with God. These 18 verses can be broken down into a few sections, as you see in your uh, bulletins this morning. We'll walk through five sections that summarize a major point, an idea that sort of surfaces as you uh, reread the section. So, five sections, and you'll see that four of them are concerning Jesus. And you see that one of them, number three, has to do with the man who is healed And we're going to dive right in. The the first one emphasizes, number one here, Jesus' priority. Jesus' priority. Look again at verses 1 through 7. It begins, after these things. That's a simple expression, but it's pointing to the end of an indefinite period of time. We did see Jesus in Samaria. He was ministering to the Samarians and then for a while in Galilee. But here it reads, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. While feast is mentioned in John's gospel uh, six times, this is the only one unidentified. We know it has been at least a year and a half since the last one, but nothing more. So perhaps John's purpose here is to mark time and explain why Jesus is not in Jerusalem. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, whoever then first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So there's this shallow pool, and it probably looks something like the Uh, reflecting pool uh, in front of the Lincoln Memorial there in DC. And it had five porches, covered areas over the years that encouraged a great many who it says here were sick, blind, lame, and withered to sit and wait for the water to be stirred. What's interesting here is now there was a superstition There was a superstition. In fact, most Bibles have noted this with brackets. You look in your Bibles, you'll see end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 in brackets there. So here was the superstition. There was movement in the water. And if the water moved, they believed perhaps that it was an angel that was moving that water. And if you were the first person to get in that pool, that small pool, then you would be, possibly you would be healed in that public place. We don't know how the superstition came to be. Perhaps someone was bathing in this public pool, and in some manner, they felt better afterwards, and sure enough, that started it. But we do know that the stirring of the waters, we know this now, it came from an underground spring that fed it. So occasionally, the water would stir, and the moment when the water would stir, everyone would panic, and who's going to be first to touch that water? That's a superstition. You know, we complain about our health care, and rightly so. I mean, it could be better, but I am grateful. Look, if I I have something going on with my teeth or my gums, I can go to the dentist. Um, I am struggling a little bit this morning. I've been struggling for about a week or two with my contacts. We'll find out how well I do. But, um, you know, I can go to the eye doctor. Uh, But back then in ancient times, people were desperate for any kind of medical help, hence the superstition. Uh, People are like that. They will find any sort of thing to believe in to give them hope, right? Knock on wood. From a technical perspective, the earliest Greek manuscripts do not include these words. Uh, In total, there's about a half dozen Greek words that were foreign to John's writings. In fact, uh, three words do not appear anywhere else in his gospel. But it was in the second century that it was decided to add them just to give some greater context. So we have it in brackets. Uh, We're generally a New American Standard Bible Church. Pastor Dave preaches from that. I preach from that and teach from that. Uh, But uh, if you have an ESV Bible, it'll be interesting for you because that verse, verse 4, is missing. In the ESV Bible, it actually jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. So you can do a little show and tell. You can kind of tease somebody who has ESV and tell them they don't have the whole Bible. You can say, you know, you're missing a verse. They took the whole verse right out. And if they know their stuff, they'll go, yeah, but that's just superstition. That's not even scripture. So back off a little bit. Uh, By the way, I love those who attempt to use this as an argument that our Bibles are full of error, right? That we don't have the completed canon because of that. Hey, maybe you only got like 98 or 97% of your Bible. No, I would argue that we have 103% of anything With such detail, it notes instances like this one. I mean, it notes it. It puts it in brackets so you don't mistake, and even footnotes it so you don't mistake that this is not in the original text here, but historically accurate. This is what people thought. This is the superstition of the day, and it's good for us to know that. And so Jesus has a priority. Verse 5, there is a man who had been ill for whatever reason he's unable to walk and jesus is divinely aware that he has a single hope to be the first in the pool right to 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 get healed in verse six it says that jesus knew jesus was supernaturally aware this poor man had been waiting for 38 years Can you fathom that? 38 years. I mean, just to put that in perspective, we're in 2023. That would be like he was waiting since 1985. 1985. That's parachute pants. That's live aid. We are the world. Do you remember? Some of you, some of you have no clue. But 38 years. And we can conclude here because of the verses that follow that Jesus, based on his his own sovereign will, he chooses to single this man out at this time to be healed. And furthermore, we, we can see here that the question Jesus asks him is a rhetorical one, yes? Do you wish to get well? That's what Jesus asked him here, right? Do you wish to get well? He wants the man to articulate what he is placing his hope in. So he says in verse seven, sir, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Sir, he obviously doesn't know that this is Jesus. He's looking at this guy like just a passerby, some pedestrian. And you could tell he's frustrated, can't you? I mean, I've got no one. I've got no family member. I've got no friends to help me to get in this water. I mean, he is disabled to the point of utter despair. D.A. Carson once described this this way. I think this is excellent. What we have here are the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. He thinks he's answering a stupid question. Have you ever thought that? You ever experienced that? I was 16, maybe 17 years old, getting ready for high school one morning in Long Island. And my mom comes walking in, walks in, and says, what do I do? I have super glue on my tongue. I looked and went, what? That same kind of look. Like, you're asking, what? I have super glue on my tongue. She was opening a super glue container. You ever done this? You know, it's really tight. And you go, I'll just one of these? And it squirted on her tongue. Now, I want to tell you, she's okay. She's here today. She's in the auditorium. She knew I was going to tell this. I asked her permission. But that's, that's not the bad part of the story. What's worse is I was the typical 16, 17-year-old. And I looked at her and I said, do I look okay? <laughs> that's a true teenager, isn't it? But when she came in with that, I'm looking going, what? What are you saying? In much the same way, do you wish to get well? Are you kidding me? I, I'm just waiting. I'm, I'm hoping that, that someday someone will lift me into those waters when they move. He's in some ways going, what, what is this? Is this a stupid question? But in all seriousness, Jesus is going to the one in real need. The one in real need. That is his priority. The one who has no control over the situation. He can't even participate in the superstition in his own strength. And Jesus calls him out. So first we see here Jesus' priority, that of this man. And second here, number two, Jesus' power. Jesus' healing power. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Wow. In some way, we could think this was the end, right? The, the credits could start rolling here. The son of God in this text who demonstrates compassion through his healing power, he performs a miracle. A miracle. What is a miracle? A miracle is an act of God that overthrows the laws of nature it overthrows the laws of nature. It's supernatural. When Jesus healed this man, it was done completely. It was overthrowing the, the laws of nature. This man was disabled from walking for at least 38 years. His legs likely had no muscle, yet there are no cortisone shots that are needed. Jesus didn't say, hey, I just want to tell you, be sure to get that looked at. And, you know, Beginning now, and maybe in a few weeks, and, and definitely for a period of months here, you're probably going to need some physical therapy. You know, the nerve connections, they're, they're, they're not there, but if you work with this over time, I, I think you could really get around a bit, and in a year or so, maybe you'll be able to do short distances with a cane. Hey, this is a miracle categorized as a sign and wonder. God used these miracles as signs and wonders they they would always produce awe that's where we get the wonder from and they are signs because they would always point to something signs and wonders and a sign always points there's the exit sign what's the exit sign doing it's it's pointing to the exit that's where the exit is and when jesus performs this miracle in the power of the spirit he is pointing to something Actually, to someone, right? Someone. This is the Son of God. Jesus the Messiah. You can't do it. Wonder at it and see where the sign points to. Signs and wonders. Now, there are false teachers today who proclaim they have the, the gift of uh, miracles. They can produce signs and wonders. Again, this is why we call them false teachers. They're not able to break the law's Of nature. And I prefer Conrad Mabeewe. I don't know if you're familiar with Conrad Mabeewe. He's a pastor in South Africa. His response, he said to them, look, if you can perform healing miracles, then stop talking and start walking. And what I mean by that is go into the children cancer wards and clear them out. Just clear them out. Just shut up and get to work and go do it. If you really possess this power for the glory of God, then get busy. Add to that what Jesus says to this man. This is just as strong here. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Can you imagine? It would be like walking up to a man in a wheelchair and saying, get up, pick up your wheelchair, and walk. It almost seems rude It almost seems rude unless you can do it. Then you see the compassion in it. Because it's not only a miracle, but it's an act of mercy. Because the guy got up. Verse 9 immediately the man became well. Jesus the Messiah just broke the laws of nature, it was instantaneous. And it's it's undeniable. It's not just one leg. Oh, wow, look at that. No, both. And they could carry the full weight of his torso and walk. It's a miracle. And nobody was confused by what had happened. It's an instantaneous miracle. An undeniable miracle. And then add to that, it was unearned. An unearned miracle. And this is important. Jesus didn't tell the man, you know, you need to have a little more faith. We've already established that his faith, his hope was in the pool, right? In a, in a superstition. Or worse yet, Jesus didn't say to him, if you would just sow some seeds of faith and then I can use that money for the temple tax and I will promise you a miracle. I'm going to promise you a blessing if you'll just sow those seeds there. Do you know what I mean? Many of today's false teachers not only lie about their abilities, but then they pervert them to obtain money. No prosperity theology can be found here in John 5 or in the New Testament or the entire Bible. To name it and claim it is utter fiction. God does the healing and he can still perform a supernatural act and we'll get to this shortly, but there's no need for signs and wonders today, Jesus has already lived and died and rose again, and the canon is closed. We have the revealed word in our hands. You know who Benny Hinn is, yes? Uh, world famous televangelist. But do you know who Costi Hinn is? Costi, uh, do you know his story? Let I me mean, encourage that you read his book. Uh, it's called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Costi Hinn. It was this passage that we're in right now that Ca- Costi writes that opened his eyes to the false teachings of his Uncle Benny and others. Costi was preparing to preach uh, a sermon on it, and listen to what Costi wrote about the first time he truly studied verses 8 and 9. Just these verses right here. He writes. This shows Jesus' creative power. The healing was immediate. No process, no music, no special service, no offering, no fanfare. Fare. He healed the sick man with a word, arise. And then he asks, Was any money involved? There's no indication of this man doing anything for Jesus to get a healing. Jesus seems to have healed the man out of his own volition and desire to do so. And so, Costi was left to face the hard truth that the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Stay with me for a moment as we jump back to verse 3. Perhaps you've been thinking about this. In verse 3, it states that there lay a multitude of those who were sick blind, lame, and withered. But how many does Jesus really heal, heal here? How many does he, he heal at this moment? Just one, right? But there are a lot of people that need his healing. Why didn't he heal them too? Well, he probably did. It's very possible that he did so. As you know, his ministry becomes extremely popular in part as Jesus begins healing so many in need. But at this point, This guy wasn't getting any better or worse than anyone in the multitude. He was just chosen. And we can say that of ourselves, right? Bringing nothing to the table. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him, when Jesus saw him, Jesus gazed upon this helpless and this hopeless man. Others would look away, but not Jesus they, they wouldn't want to get caught up in this man's misery, but Jesus looked intently. You know, it's much like uh, Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree or Nathaniel under the fig tree. It was, he was Jesus's priority. And remember, the only faith this man had was in some silly superstition, which failed again and again and again for 38 years. Instead, it was Jesus's power By the spirit that had healed this unbeliever. Which brings us to our third point, number three, the man's phrase. The man's phrase. Let me begin with the end of verse nine. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Oh boy, this certainly sets the stage here, doesn't it? Uh, Before we reread verses 10 through 13, that statement at the end of verse 9, it reads like a boxing bell. Ding! Right? It should hit like the force of a bomb. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. To carry that bed, really just uh, uh, a bed of straw. That's all that really was. A straw mat. On his shoulder, as instructed by Jesus on the Sabbath, was strictly forbidden by the rabbis. And Jesus took every opportunity to convince them of this error. The issue was that Jesus absolutely refused to yield or to observe legalistic, man-made Sabbath regulations that had been created by the rabbis. What uh, had been called rabbinic tradition. Jesus didn't care about any of that. Yes, the law of God commanded Israel to observe seven-day creation Sabbath. But the problem was the rabbis started creating these additional rules, uh, additional Sabbath rules to live by, rules that they would say were necessary to find favor with God, to keep favor uh, with God. You know, while we live under the new covenant age of grace right now, let me say that Sabbath was, was a good day under the law, designed to give God's people a rest from, from their work, from, from their labors. From their work, it, it was a blessing to them to be able to rest. But the rabbinic tradition further defined work, and they went ahead and created 39 forbidden categories. I didn't say like a list of 39 things you're not to do. 39 containers for those rules categories there as an example you could sew one stitch on the sabbath thank you but not two couldn't do that you could write one letter of the alphabet on the sabbath but not two you weren't even allowed to erase a letter because then it meant you probably would be writing another letter Now, this is by no means, excuse me, an exhaustive treatise on the the Sabbath and the rules of tradition. But let me give you one more. This one is pertinent to our passage. You are not allowed to carry something from one domain to another. You are not allowed to carry something from one domain to another. So this man carrying his bed, well, that's a big no-no. I mean he's in direct violation of rabbinical not biblical law and who told him he should he could do that again verse 10 so the jews were saying to the man who was cured it is the sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet but he answered them he who made me well was the one who said to me pick up your pallet and walk They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? Verse 13, but the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. So did you catch the man's phrase in verse 11? His his blaming, self-centered, self-preserving words that are there. He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. In essence, this man is saying, wasn't my idea. I didn't have anything to do with it. Somebody came along and told me to do this for the first time in 38 years. What was I supposed to do? This is not the only time that we read of this kind of thinking in the Bible. Genesis 3.12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Not my fault. Nothing has changed since the fall of Adam. Or even the time of Christ. Instead of rejoicing over the glory of the one who had healed him, the man simply passed the buck. He passed the buck. Worse yet, this man, when pressed even further, was an unable to give a name to this healer. Verse 13 says that in the commotion of the multitude, Jesus had slipped away. And you know, he, he did this so often in the Gospels, slipping away as he was in complete sovereign control of his three and a half years of ministry on on the earth, he would not be arrested, unjustly tried, and crucified until it was the Father's time. And you know what is also interesting here? Do you notice how the, the Jewish leaders, they don't even acknowledge the miracle, the healing all they ever cared about were their regulations, <clears throat> their rules. They didn't even care that this poor man who had been suffering for 38 plus years was standing before them on his own two feet. They had completely, completely missed the gracious power of God. And it was on display right before their very eyes. From Jesus's priority, power, and then we have the man's phrase this brings us to number four here number four jesus's prescription jesus's prescription our savior had already dealt with the man's physical problem he had healed him and now he's going to address his spiritual problem look again at verse 14 verse 14 afterwards jesus found him in the temple and said to him behold You have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Verse 15 The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, because of the the festival that's mentioned earlier in this text, the proximity of the pool uh, as well, Jesus is in the temple area, as are like thousands of people. It's not that he's literally inside the temple. He's in the proximity of the the temple area. And there are, because of whatever festival it is, there are tons of people that are there. And he supernaturally, sovereignly knew where this man was. And he finds him. And he prescribes, he specifies, he qualifies an important spiritual truth. A spiritual truth that should prompt an everlasting heart change. Listen to the urgent nature, the importance of what he says here. Jesus says, do not sin anymore. What sin is Jesus referring to here? The grammar here, it, it does indicate that for this particular man, some sin was at the cause of his physical infirmity. I mean, we know nothing more and and need to know nothing more other than that it was his great sin against God that led to his great suffering all these years. And these two phrases, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you, they're not mutually exclusive. They cannot be interpreted in any other way than to tie them together here. Do not sin anymore anymore so that nothing worse happens to you worse than the 38 years of physical suffering you've endured sin and suffering sin and suffering this should put the fear of god into us at times scripture does teach that there are times that sin leads to suffering Not exhaustive here either, but Exodus 5, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, 1 Kings 13 and 14, 2 Kings 1 and 13, 2 Chronicles 16. In the New Testament, you got 1 Corinthians 11. It goes on and on and on. And the life of David comes to mind in Psalm 32. Excuse me, David, in his horrific sin with Bathsheba, he states that until he truly repented, And until God had really forgiven him, that he suffered for that physically, that he dealt with physical issues all through that. But let's be careful here too, because scripture also makes it clear that not all physical suffering is the direct result of intentional sin. Not all physical suffering is the direct result of sin. I mean, it's obvious. We we live in a fallen world with fallen flesh. My body, your body doesn't always work the way it should. But even in the midst of those difficulties, we are instructed to give God the glory, to remain faithful even when we don't receive the the healing that we want, that we desire. Jump to chapter 9 for a moment. Just for a moment here, John chapter 9. In John 9, we're going to see in a future sermon in this gospel that there's another man that Jesus heals in John chapter 9 who was blind from birth. And look at the question that the disciples ask of Jesus in verse 2. Who sinned? That's what we want to know. Who sinned? this man or his parents and Jesus answers it was neither nobody sinned he didn't sin and his parents didn't sin that would cause this suffering but back in John 5 it was true for this man excuse me his sin had resulted in his suffering and Jesus' prescription applies for all of us. Mankind's sin, not just as man's sin, your sin, my sin. If left to itself, not covered by uh, God's grace and, and God's forgiveness through repentance and trust in Christ, any sin will cause an even greater suffering. That's an eternal suffering. James 2.10 says, For whoever, whosoever keeps the, the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. You could live pretty close to a perfect life, but just one sin, and we're guilty of the entire law. Sin affects our spiritual health, for sure. It creates a broken relationship with God. This is why repentance is required. It isolates the person from the family of God. Sin pulls us away from a life well-lived. It puts that person in the crosshairs of the enemy of God. I mean, Satan's on the ready. He's prowling about. And in this chapter, this situation, this man is forewarned about the suffering that will follow his sin. Jesus is saying, your sin caused your suffering. Continuum rebellion, and man, it's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse than than 38 years of physical suffering. That's because rebellion redefines us. Rebellion redefines us. It it can determine our identity. Are are we in Christ or a child of God or or of the devil? A child of God or of the devil? It determines our, our priority. Do we live for self? Do we live for self or the Savior? Self or the Savior? And it can very well determine our eternity. Our eternity. Look, if you have not placed your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, there's something awaiting you that Jesus warns here to this man. Just look at verse 29 in this chapter. Verse 29. It speaks of a resurrection of judgment, a body that will be resurrected, suited for suffering and punishment. How will you respond? Are you putting your hope in some sort of Bethesda pool? How long will you continue to do so? Has it been 38 years? How long? This man, we can conclude by verse 15, responded poorly. After having received the doctor's prescription here, being Jesus, with a sense of urgency, it says the man went away and told, literally reported to the Jews, That it was Jesus who had made him well. And this is sad news. Don't misinterpret this. This man picked sides. He chose the wrong team. This is not a man seeking to give praise to Jesus and glory to God for what he had done. This is not him saying, oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus who healed me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's Jesus. It's Jesus who did this. The man just wanted to get right with the authorities. In the face of the compassion of Christ and a miracle to boot, he had no belief. He had replaced Jesus' power with his own religion of superstition, failing to follow Jesus' prescription to, to repent and believe and receive the ultimate rescue from his sin and suffering. Let me just add, in case this narrative is not going the way you would expect it to, we shouldn't be surprised. This shouldn't surprise us, as we see this happen all the time, all the time. In ministry, inside the local church, people are, they're ministered to in, in, in a variety of ways. Galatians 5 says, through love, we are to serve one another. And so, the people here of Grace Life, and I believe we would all attest to this, are loved by the family of God. Carried by the family of God, even pursued by the family of God whenever we veer off path a bit. But sometimes in ministry and in life, they turn from any call to reconciliation, any call to uh, repentance and reconciliation. Instead, like this man's disloyalty to Christ, they turn on you. Galatians calls it biting. Galatians 5, biting back. Which begs the question, did they value what they had graciously received in love in Christ's name? Did they value it? Likewise, did this man in John 5, did he truly value this miracle? His, his healing from the Son of God? Nope. He was healed and he rejected the healer. Jesus was warm-hearted, and he was cold-blooded. Jesus was compassionate, but he was cruel. I mean, this man went with those whose prescriptions for behavior were legalistically tied to the Sabbath. Sinners don't naturally tolerate the confrontation of their sin. And this text gives evidence to that. Let me just be honest here, if it weren't for the religious leaders in this chapter and what starts to play out for really the first time in the Gospel of John, I might have simply titled this message Ingratitude. Ingratitude. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. You need to go, Jesus is saying, you need to go a different way than what has marked your life. This prescription applies to each and every one of us. It is a call to live in the fear of the Lord. Reject him, and something worse will certainly happen to you than what you've experienced in this life. That's the warning that's here. Number one, Jesus is priority of this man. Number two... Jesus's healing power. Number three, the man's phrase. I mean, he, he is the one. He's the one who told me to do this. Number four, Jesus's gospel prescription. And lastly, number five, Jesus is persecuted. Quite obvious right here. He is persecuted. All of this is the beginning of what leads us to Resurrection Sunday, to our Easter, isn't it? the beginning of the Jewish leader's opposition towards Jesus, the beginning of their uh, hatred for him, verse 16, for this reason, his rejection of Jewish legalism, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They kept the ceremonies and the Sabbath. They believed they had achieved some kind of status by their devotion to to tradition and they took the report from the healed man and as if it were some sort of a fixed policy of action they turn their focus they turn their attention to jesus and they do so with hatred with hostility they're now looking at him and you know our lord he is direct He is blunt at times, but Jesus answered them. Look at verse 17. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Such a simple statement, but what a brilliant defense we have here. Why was it okay for for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath? Or to tell the man uh, it's it's okay to carry his bed on the Sabbath day. Because God is still active today. Jesus was reminding his hearers that the Sabbath rest was built into creation. Because God created everything in six days. Resting on the seventh. But it didn't mean that God quit. It wasn't like he stopped being active. Just as man was to work six and rest one you wouldn't be sleeping 24 hours maybe you would but you probably wouldn't be sleeping 24 hours you would be up and active god governs all of creation minute to minute moment to moment he didn't just create it he sustains it all god's power cannot be disassociated from his person his power cannot be disassociated from his person the healing of this man was a healing by God, God's power on the Sabbath. But it wasn't just a Sabbath response. Do you see what else he did here? He declared his equality with God in that statement. My father and I, we are working. That was Jesus who did the healing who told the man to get up and grab his bed, who offered forgiveness of sin. God the Father and God the Son are one, and this gave them even more cause to come at him, verse 18, for this reason, or repeat it again. Verse 16 had said it, right? For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God with god and so it begins this is where it starts you know what this text tells me they knew exactly what jesus was saying and doing they understood what he was communicating concerning himself and god they knew sure they they viewed him as the uh ultimate sabbath breaker but that was just the beginning john in recording this by way of the holy spirit here had a a similar tone that begs a question how do you view him do you see something much more than a form of some kind of religious superstition again it's the greatest question we can ever ask of ourselves who do you say jesus is who do you say jesus is your response will determine not only your values and your lifestyle, but your, your eternal destiny as well. And this is what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. If you remember Pastor Dave's sermon from a couple of weeks ago on this, she said, I know that the Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus responded, I who speak to you am he. Let me close uh, with these words of Paul from Colossians 2.8. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to end this message by just reading these words. Think on these words. Colossians 2.8. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance... With Christ. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition and in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning in your word. Uh, We pray that you might speak to that struggling heart, that one life that is hanging in the balances between making a a decision that is relative to being captured by philosophy, by uh, superstition, by a pool of Bethesda, or in accordance with Christ. And I, I just pray that your spirit will minister to them, motivate them, that it would convict them, that no one would leave this place without a commitment to the one who is equal with God, who is God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. May they know that only in the Word of God is their truth, and only in Christ is their peace. Bless this truth to our hearts. Uh, may it give us comfort and encouragement. May it increase our worship and our love for the Savior. May it empower us to have an effective witness for him to those who need to know him. And again, we pray that you'll work, you'll work salvation in hearts even today. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.